Well, welcome one more time to City Life Stuff. It's good to have every single one of you with us. Uh, last weekend, we weren't here. We were in Newport News for Legacy Weekend, celebrating the church building that got gifted to that campus in Newport News. That was like a family reunion uh, for a lot of us going back and worshiping with them, uh, church family. But we're back to being one church in two locations, right? We're back here in Suffolk. So it's good to have you all here. And we're actually continuing the series that was started and introduced by Fred last week which we're calling Why Do Be. And so if you got your Bibles here tonight, you can turn to Luke chapter 19 because that's where we're going to be. We're going to be uh, parking it in Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Uh, but just to get uh, our brains going, get us participating to start as you turn there, let me just ask, what are some movie one-liners that are classic or memorable for you? I'll be back, right? Arnold's got a whole litany of them. I'll be back. It's not a tumor. Get to the chopper. Hasta la vista, baby. Right? You can go on for days. <laughs> As you wish. Yeah, Princess Bride. You can't handle the truth. Meant to be yelled. Right? Lord, you complete me. Yeah? <laughs> Come on. All right, you keep going with Princess Bride, right? <laughs> As you wish, inconceivable, my, my wage, <laughs> my name is Inigo Montoya, you killed my father. Do you know what I found out last week? They're actually total rabbit trail. They're, they're trying to remake that movie. Right, Holly, somebody in Hollywood, we need to start a petition, City Life Suffolk, right? We will start that petition. No, like, it was actually, uh, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, Carrie Ools, the actor, right, who played the lead role. He, he uh, quote tweeted the news and said there's a shortage of perfect movies in this world and it would be a pity to damage this one. <laughs> but uh, my thoughts are if you want a different version, right, read the book. It's based on a book. So read the book. Imagine, you can imagine whatever you want. You can get a whole different version that way. But my question tonight is if the Gospels, right, so people have made movies from the Gospels. If somebody made a movie and every word of Jesus, every red letter from the Gospels was spoken in that movie, what would be the, the line that resonates with you? What would be the, the thing that Jesus said that you'd still be thinking about when you picking popcorn kernels out your teeth or you're driving home with your spouse after date night to go see it? What's the, the line that would resonate with you that Jesus said? It is finished. It's good. Yeah, we can open this up. What else? What are the words of Jesus that have always stuck with you? resonated with you. Right, praying in the garden. Yeah. Anybody else? Words of Jesus. Follow me, right? His invitation to each one of us. Yeah, in this world, you'll have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. There's so much, right? But I want to turn to Luke 19 tonight because it's a passage that contains what many theologians would consider the most significant statement, the biggest one-liner that Jesus says throughout the Gospels. But it's not just the statement uh, at the heart of this series. There's actually three declarative statements of Jesus at the heart of this series 
why do be and it, and it's three statements that are really just the heart that God's given us and the vision that God's given us for this season as a church and these three statements make up why do and be and, and it looks like this why comes from Luke 19:10 which we're going to look at tonight where Jesus says I came to seek and save the lost then we get the do from Jesus' declarative statement in Matthew 16, 18, that on this rock I will build my church. That's the, the thing to do. And then we get the be from Jesus' statement about his disciples in John 13, 35. By this everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love. Right? If you love one another. And so from these statements flows this fresh vision that we're writing down with and running with as a church, like you're reading Habakkuk, where it talks about writing down the vision so we can run with it. And it's just this idea that we're called to build the church Jesus envisioned and to love the world he died to save. To build the church he envisioned and to love the world that he died to save. So tonight we're going to look at the why, right, the world he died to seek and to save. And I want to read the entirety of that passage where we get to Luke 19, 1, 10. And again, it's in Luke 19, 1, where it says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. And when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And all the people saw this and began to mutter, he is gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord. Here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save what was lost. So now we get the context, right? And the context of this passage is is crucial because this passage here in Luke 19, it's the last personal encounter we see Jesus have before he enters Jerusalem to go to the cross. So it's important to recognize just who this interaction is with. It speaks volumes. And then the Holy Spirit inspires Luke as he's writing Luke chapter 19 to finish this passage in verse 10, which is spoken by Jesus as the reason he was going to Jerusalem, as the reason he came to earth, which is to seek and save the lost. So the question I need us all to ask ourselves, and I want all of us to ask ourselves tonight, is, is Jesus' why my why? Is his mission my mission? Is his purpose my purpose? Is his focus my focus? Is his heart my heart? What breaks his heart? Does it break my heart? What he desires to see and desired to see when he walked the earth, is that what I desire? You know, Jesus says in Luke 17, as he's praying to God, the Father, he says, you have given me a mission here on earth, and similarly, I give them, the church, a mission. And when Paul was walking out this mission, he said that, hey, it's it's not just I that lives, but Christ lives in me. The heart that Jesus had, the mission he walked in, the purpose he had in life, that was born in Paul, and it should be born in each one of us. The question is, is his why your why? Maybe you would ask, I don't know, because what does that look like? (laughs) Well, let's look at Luke 19 and look at the passage and, again, look at the context. Because it says at the beginning of Luke 19 that he was just passing through. 
Jesus was walking through Jericho, didn't have any appointments in Jericho, didn't have a hotel in Jericho that he was headed towards. He was going to Jerusalem. He was just passing through Jericho, point A to point B. You know, one of my biggest <laughs> character flaws is, is I get too focused. Like when I got a task at hand, I got tunnel vision, right? When I'm going from point A to point B, whether it's for a gallon of milk or to like meet somebody at Starbucks, we're gonna have a, a hard conversation, whatever it is, like anything else is an interruption, anything else in the periphery. I'm like, I'm like one of the horses in Williamsburg. They wear like the blinders or whatever. That's like me when I'm going from point A to point B. But that wasn't Jesus. Like Jesus was just passing through, but his focus wasn't on Jericho. His focus was on Jerusalem. But ultimately, Jesus' focus wasn't on a place, wasn't on a thing. Jesus' focus was constantly people, not just any people, the lost. He was focused on seeking and saving the lost. And he had this heat-seeking focus that was so active that he could be in a crowded Jericho street. This guy's always surrounded by hundreds and thousands of people, and yet he could see Zacchaeus over on the side in a tree and, and recognize him. He would be like killer at Where's Waldo. I don't even know if y'all know what Where's like we know what Where's Waldo is, right? Like he could be surrounded by thousands. The woman with the issue of blood, or all these different crowds, where he knows there's a person he's called to minister to, seek and save in that moment, and he always knew just the, the one, right? the ninety-nine for the one. Jesus always found purpose in the place where he was, and see what happens is when you know your why, that produces purpose. Whether you're just passing through or it seems like just an ordinary day in the middle of nowhere, why produces purpose? And how do, we, how do we walk in the same way? Well, it starts small and it started small for Jesus. Quite simply, Jesus looked up. That's what it says he did. He's walking along and he looked up. You know, if we're going to save or see Jesus save and the Holy Spirit use us, like we have to seek. And if we're going to seek, it, it helps, to, helps to look up. <laughs> Quite simply. But, you know, as our mind becomes more and more filled by, like, the 12 square inches of our cell phones, we just become less and less aware of what's around us. Like, I've seen news reports, read articles on the dangers of texting and walking. I said that right. Not texting and driving. We're all well aware, like, that's dangerous. I'm talking texting and walking. You can YouTube videos of people falling downstairs, walking into water fountains, walking into all kinds of glass doors. Uh, my favorite one uh, is, is there's like a helicopter view of this bear that's loose in the neighborhood. I'm, I'm going to find it and post it to Facebook tonight. The bear is just like running through the neighborhood, and a guy's walking down the sidewalk looking at his phone, takes a right, and basically walks into the bear before running away. And the whole reason I was reminded of that this week is there was a video making rounds on the Internet of like the security camera on somebody's front porch, and there was a bear, a big bear, that came up on their, their, their porch, was kind of walking towards the door, and then he stops because he heard something. So this older couple comes out, opens the door, turns around, locks it, and like in 10 seconds does all that and walks away, never seeing the fact that there's a bear like right next to them. So practically speaking, looking up helps because apparently you'll never know when a bear is like right around the corner. It's practical, but it's also spiritually significant. Because if we're called to love our neighbor, how can we if we don't recognize that they're even there? If we're called to seek and save, how can we if we don't see them? Like looking up is so practical and simple. Like eye contact, a smile, and a hello is a lost art these days, right? Like making eye contact with them when you're walking up and, and just smiling and saying hello. You know, Proverbs 15.30 says a, a cheerful look brings joy to the heart of another. 
And in a society where so many people are struggling with, like, self-worth, right, feeling like they have, they have any worth, or struggling with depression, you never know how eye contact, a smile, and a hello, just recognizing that person can be, like, the simplest ministry that the Holy Spirit can use. I think sometimes when we think we got to seek and save the lost, we think of these big, extravagant things. we got to fill stadiums. we got to get microphones and stages, all the stuff we can post to social media about. But sometimes it's not the big and extravagant things. Sometimes it's the, the simple, small things done with big and extravagant love. It can be just as simple as just saying hello to somebody, starting a conversation, and it can become ministry. So why? It gives purpose, but it also simplifies. Again, we, we think of seeking the lost as, as doing these big, gargantuan things, but sometimes it's just doing simple things with big love. So why produces purpose? Why simplifies? We also see that why gives value to moments. It gives value to people, right? People in situations immediately increase in value when you realize that you're never going to pass anybody that Jesus didn't come to earth to die for, right, by name. Like nobody you pass during the day is somebody that Jesus was like, well, yeah, yeah, I didn't die for them. No, he died for each person you pass every day. Every person you pass every day has an eternal soul. Right? And God, Jesus, died for them. Why gives value? But, but lastly, why compels you? Jesus sees this man, Zacchaeus, in the tree, and what does he say? He says, come down immediately. Like, this is when you see your kid 20 feet up in the tree, like, come down immediately, right? But no, he's, he wants to hang out. He says, I must stay at your house, not tomorrow, not the day after, today. He's talking right now. Again, Jesus didn't have an appointment with Zacchaeus. But this inter seeming interruption was an invitation for Jesus. Oh, I can, I can reach this guy. He was prompted by purpose even when passing through. And Zacchaeus takes him up on the invitation. He's eager to be with Jesus, this guy who's got a rep of being friend of tax collectors when everybody hates tax collectors. And he's like, yes, this guy wants to actually hang out with me. Let's do it. So he hosts him in his home. He repents. And then we see in this text, Jesus says, salvation has come to this home. Right? Zacchaeus. Right, has stepped into eternal life, right? So happy ending, right? Everybody goes home happy, right? Except for verse 7. It says, all the people saw this and began to mutter. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Why were they so triggered? Well, by all appearances, Zacchaeus was a bad man. He was a tax collector. Maybe like, hey, hold up. My wife works at H&R Block. What are we talking about here? No, you got to understand the context, right? Collecting taxes back then when it was Roman occupation was basically like your people are being oppressed. Your people are being oppressed by the Romans. And you've got these Jews who would operate as tax collectors who would regularly cheat their own countrymen right, by, by charging interest. It says that Zacchaeus wasn't just the chief. He was wealthy. How did he get all that wealth? By charging his own people interest as they were paying taxes to the, the people that were oppressing them. This is the guy everybody hated and loved to hate. Like, it was popular to hate this guy, right? They all, right, it says they all saw this and began to mutter. I think it's in the New Living. And it just speaks to the Jewish spirit of the day. It was narrow, tribal, with insiders and outsiders. And no doubt they see Jesus, again, with this Jew who was collecting taxes for the Romans, and they were thinking, how could any good be found in somebody who does that, who aligns with the Romans politically over their own people? But are we any different in our culture so often? How could anybody that voted for that guy or voted along those party lines be good or know as much as I know, right? Like if they knew what I knew, they wouldn't do that. The culture feeds us lines 
all the time in the sand that separate and make an us and a them. Whether it's black and white or red and blue, politically progressive and conservative, we so often let these lines divide us in the church and we look like fools in the eyes of the world. That's going to be week number four in this series. But how much more as a church, I'm talking church as a whole, do we often draw lines in the sand where it's the world and the church or sinners and the righteous or made righteous? Because it says in this passage, they're like, Jesus has come to the house of a sinner. And I love that it's got quotation marks around it. You know, they're both right and wrong. Because, yeah, Zacchaeus was a sinner. Zacchaeus was a sinner. But their response was to scorn him, right? The, the religious response of that day would be to separate themselves from him and then even berate him. We do that often, too, <laughs> in our in our time today, you see somebody that lives differently than you, votes differently than you, their sexuality is different, and your impulse is to separate yourself from them, distance yourself, and even berate them. Tell them why they're wrong. The Bible says this. Again, they were right. He's a sinner. But that didn't make him an object of Jesus' scorn. It made it an object of his seeking and saving. Right? Many translations say, uh, it's like the new living, the amplified. Many of the translations say that he was the guest of a notorious sinner. And that word's key because notorious means his sin was known. Like everybody in the public knew this guy was living wrong. You could see it by his very vocation. All right, so the key is it was out in the open, easy for people to look down on. Meanwhile, everybody else could hide their sin behind a veil of self-righteousness. I think it's key that the parable that precedes the story of Zacchaeus Right in Luke 18, right before Luke 19, is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. They're both in the temple praying, this Pharisee and this tax collector. And it says the Pharisee's prayer is like, God, I thank you that I'm not like those other people, the, the murderers, the adulterers. And he goes through a list and then he's like, and this guy, right, the tax collector. Can you imagine going to church, right, and you're worshiping? God, thank you that you're my Jehovah Jireh, you're my provider, thank you for my family, and thank you that I'm not like this guy, right, like in the middle of worship. But it's not just about the prayer, it's about the posture, right? Looking down on somebody else because we think, ah, oh, we've done a little better. It's a lie of the enemy that creates this us and them, even within the walls of the church. And that sinner prayed, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Those were the words of the tax collector. And Jesus finishes this passage right before Luke 19 and says that, hey, one of them went home justified and covered in grace. And it wasn't the Pharisee. It was the one who said, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus' point is that it's better to be a penitent, notorious sinner than it is to be a prideful and naive one. Naive enough to think that I, I don't need grace. right? I don't need Jesus because I'm doing okay. But you could talk about another us and them. It's not present in Luke 19, but it's present in Luke, and it's, it's lepers, people with leprosy, right? Lepers were considered so sick and so contagious that they were basically booted from society, shunned completely. They were made to live in leper colonies. They were declared unclean, basically given the social stiff arm. You didn't want to be near a leper. They had to cry out unclean when they were in a crowd. And maybe, like, what is leprosy? Because it's not common these days. It's complex, it's, it's a disease that takes course over, over years, but in its simplest form, leprosy is to be numb to pain or injury. 
It's like a whole sermon to be preached on that, right? Like we pray, we try to pray the pain away, but to not be able to feel pain, it's a curse. Because you can injure yourself or be injured as a leper, and you don't even realize it until you're bleeding out, right? The, the animals could eat you in your sleep, right? And you wouldn't even know it, right? Because you can't feel it. In Luke 5, earlier in this same gospel, Jesus heals a leper, right? Some chapters before Luke 19, Jesus heals a leper. And I don't think it's coincidence that immediately after this, Jesus calls Levi to be his disciple. Levi was a lot like Zacchaeus, tax collector, publicly scorned, a notorious sinner. And Jesus calls him to be his disciple. And then like a cherry on top, he calls together his whole tax collector crew and they have dinner together. Right. And so the Pharisees, like they are in Luke 19, they're triggered by this. They're mad. And they say, they say to the disciples, why do you eat and drink with such scum? Scum. Like those people, the, the, the lost to our found, the unclean to our clean. You know, spiritually, they treated notorious sinners like lepers, unclean and to be avoided. But I believe that the account of the leper and Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisee are both in Luke 5 for an important reason. Because spiritually, it was the Pharisees who struggled with leprosy or had leprosy. Because to be blind to your own sin and a common need for grace is basically to be a spiritual leper. You're numb to what's killing you. You don't see your own wound and your need for healing. You aren't even aware of your own need for grace. And so Jesus replies to the Pharisees that, hey, I came for the sick. Because it's the sick that need a doctor, and it's the sick that need healing. And it's so important for all of us to realize that Romans says everyone has sinned and fallen short. We've all injured ourselves. We've all fallen. We all need grace. We all need Jesus. There's no us and them. No, all of us need grace. And we're just either aware of it or unaware of it. And I love that Jesus didn't just post up and have like a patient first where the sick had to come to him. No, he, he, he sought them out, right? He was seeking and saving. And so often how he did it is he met people at tables. Two verses in Luke start with the words, the son of man came. The first is the one we read in Luke 19 where Jesus says the son of man came to seek and save the lost. But there's another verse. It's in Luke 7, 34, where it says, the son of man came eating and drinking. I like this one, right? The son of man came eating and drinking. And you say, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. In Luke 19, we've got Jesus saying why he came for himself. But here in Luke 7, it's other people, what they've been saying, the reputation he's earned and what they've seen as he's been seeking and saving. This was Jesus' rep, eating and drinking. So we could bet that when he went to Zacchaeus' house in Luke 19, he did the same thing he did in Luke 5 with Levi. He pulled up a chair to eat at a table, break bread with Zacchaeus and all his tax collector crew. But you know what? What's our impulse when it comes to the them to our us or the lost to our found? So often we want to flip tables, <laughs> Right? We want to, we wanna, again, separate ourselves from them and then berate them and tell them why they're wrong. Right? You need Jesus, and here's why. You're wrong, and here's why. But Jesus didn't do that. Where did Jesus flip tables? In the church. When Jesus was out there, what he was busy doing was hosting the lost at tables. 
pulling up a chair at tables with the lost. And the church is finally going to start turning tables in our culture and seeing people reached and seeing salvation when we stop with this impulse to flip tables and begin hosting people at tables. Right? Jesus began his ministry, or before he began his ministry, for decades was a carpenter. He probably built tons of tables. And this is just this prophetic picture that he would spend his ministry not shunning the lost, but sharing tables with them. And Jesus ultimately seeks and saves us so that we can share a table with him eternally. Scripture talks about heaven again and again as a wedding feast. And that table that holds that feast is going to go further than the eye can see. There's going to be millions and billions of people there eating that feast with us. In Luke 14, a man says to Jesus, blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And Jesus replies with this parable about a banquet where the host, he prepares this amazing, incredible banquet, and he invites all these people from his region to come be a part. And as the parable goes on, they each give a different excuse. Everybody's got an excuse. I can't do it for this reason or that reason. They're all pretty lame. And so the servant comes back to the master, and he's like, hey, they they can't come. So the master says to the servant, bring the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And so the servant does this. Fills this banquet with the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And then he goes back to the master. He's like, man, there's still room. So the master says to the servant, he says, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. You know, when we hear this parable, the shoes we're in is the servant. We are servants of God. God is the master. And we've been called as servants of God to fill the banquet table of heaven. Our why is to take as many people with us to heaven as we can. It's the task we've been given by God. The same way that the master said to go out and fill this banquet table, that's our great commission. And these people from far away in this parable, they're going out to country roads. They're probably leaving the region to go invite more people. They probably wouldn't have even known who who this host was. And yet the servant was called to do it. And hear me on this. The church is an organization that was created and exists for the people outside of it. The church exists for non-members, for the lost. It's not some fortification that separates us and them. Us and them gets replaced by seek and save. It's our call as a church. And a stat that I, a stat that I can't stop sharing and I won't stop sharing, one day we'll all have it memorized. One day I'm probably going to be a grandfather in a rocking chair telling it to my grandkids that Jesus had 112 interactions in the Gospels. 112 interactions with people like this one was Zacchaeus. Ten of them happened in the church. Ten of them happened in the temple. Every single one other than that happened outside the temple. Because his life's why wasn't to get settled into the four walls of the church or a home. It was to seek and to save. You know, we're talking about this vision statement. All kinds of organizations have what they call mission statements. Pampers. Right? I know all about Pampers with Raj. Pampers' mission statement is happy, healthy baby development. Right? Nike's mission statement is to bring inspiration and innovation to every athlete in the world. Jesus' mission statement, to seek and save the lost. The object, the, the target for Pampers' why is babies. The target for Nike's why is athletes. The object of Jesus's why is the lost. Again, the church exists for for them. We get equipped. We come here, we're equipped. We look more like Christ so we can live with the same why he had. Again, he says in John 17, 18, the same way you gave me a mission in the world, I give them a mission in the world. 
Do we walk with the same mission? Is his why my why? I think so often in life, I talk to people and they feel disconnected. They feel like they're just drifting. Like I feel disconnected from purpose. Like I'm not doing what God wants me to do. Is his why your why? Because otherwise you've lost the plot. We can so often live content to just be saved and stay when we're called to seek and save. And maybe you'd say, well, I'm, I'm kind of content, right? I don't, I don't feel uncomfortable. I'm content living, taking care of me and mine, like me and my family. Well, I tell you, to, to lose the plot is a dangerous place to be. Because, again, where does Jesus flip the tables? In the church. It's notable in the Gospels, the instances of Jesus being angry at people. It's not the people outside the church he gets angry with. The people that Jesus gets frustrated and angry with in the Gospels are the, those that have become self-righteous, bought into this tribalism and the lie of us and them, and they'd lost the plot. So the question is, is Jesus's why my why? It's an important question, and our answer carries serious weight, serious implications. You know, my prayer this entire week as I've just been preparing this sermon, is that the Holy Spirit would sensitize our hearts again for the loss that surround us daily. Every day we go to sleep, thousands of people have died who have never heard a clear presentation of the gospel or the good news. Oh, they've heard about Jesus, but most of it's hearsay, half-truths based on tweets, right, and assumptions. We get worked up about a lot. There were marches yesterday for different things and As a church, I'm not sure there's a greater tragedy we walk in every day than the fact that every day thousands of people die all around us that have never heard a clear presentation of the gospel. And it's on our watch. But if it's on our watch, again, are we looking? Have we looked up from our navel gazing to see the need that's around us? I think we can become so focused on what we want God to do here. We come here because we want to see God move. We want to see God heal. We want to see God heal marriages, restore relationships. We want to see all of this. But do we get so focused on that that we've forgotten the things that he wants to do through us out there? So how do we seek and save? How do we walk out this why? Again, we looked at Luke 19, but to put it simply, we build a church. Again, the church is an organization that exists for its non-members. It exists for outsiders. So when Jesus says to seek and save the lost, can we ask how, his answer is to build the church. And then when you ask, okay, how do I build my church? His answer is have love for one another. And then when we ask, how is loving one another and being virtuous, how is that going to see the lost sought out and saved? Jesus would point to John 12, 32, where he says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Just a simple circle. And when we walk that out, We'll see this, the lost, sought and saved. Yeah, it's a lot that we just went through in about 12 seconds. That's why we're spending four weeks on it. So it'll come back, right? But to close, and if I could have the worship team come up. Again, John 12, 32. Jesus says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Right? Jesus was lifted up specifically and physically on the cross. And Jesus, in Luke 19, this passage we read tonight, he, w- he had set out resolutely for Jerusalem. He already knew that that was coming, that he was going to die for Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus climbs this tree so that he could see Jesus, but Jesus was already pursuing Zacchaeus. Jesus knew that he was going to be up on that cross dying for Zacchaeus. And the drawing of people through the cross, it's not a one-time event. 
We can draw people to Christ when we live like Christ and lift him up with our worship. The Romans 12 worship, where it's our conversations, where it's our actions, where it's the, the ways we serve. All of those things bring worship to God, and they lift Jesus up, and he draws people to him. And I would tell you tonight that Jesus is calling each one of us to him. For some of us, he's saying, hey, come to the table. Maybe you're thinking, man, I'm, I'm poor, wretched, blind, naked. Guess what? You'd be in good company. If that's you spiritually, like, man, I'm a wreck. That parable of that banquet that that master prepared, that was his guest list. Because really we're all that spiritually. Again, we're either aware of it or unaware. But when you realize that that's your condition, and when you realize the goodness of the grace of Jesus Christ and the work he did at the cross, we can come to him and say, I want a chair. I want an RSVP. I want to stop making excuses. And maybe that's you tonight. But maybe for many of us, you know, praise God, we, we got a seat at the table. We've RSVP'd, but we've kind of just settled in. It's no longer seek and save. It's like, I'm saved, so I'm, I'm settled. I'm just going to hang out till Jesus comes back. But we're the servants in that parable. We're called to fill the banquet table of heaven. And Holy Spirit, I would pray as I've been praying all week, even for myself, God, that you would, talks in the Bible again and again about how when we're saved, you give us a heart of flesh. God, again, sensitize our heart to the people we walk past every day, Zacchaeuses and, and Levi's, that you're calling to follow you and you want to use us as your hands and feet, God. I just pray that we would be a people that understands our why, adopts your why and looks up and lets you use us, God. If you could stand, we're going to go into worship tonight. But maybe you're in one of those two camps. Maybe you've never said, Jesus, I want to I want RSVP. I know spiritually I'm, I've fallen. I know spiritually I'm a wreck. And I've tried so many other ways to be healed, to get right, to balance the scales. But let me tell you tonight, Jesus gives us the grace we need. And if you've never stepped up under the grace of the cross, the work of Jesus Christ, man, let tonight be that night. As we go into worship, Stephan, I would love to pray for you. Anthony and Amanda would love to pray for you. But I know for many of us, you know, we're good. But sometimes the idea of I'm good makes us passive, <laughs> makes us check out on the call that Christ has given us. Maybe you need to ask the Holy Spirit to give you the, the boldness that the early church had in Acts. Or maybe you just need uh, Jesus to do a work here or there. Whatever it may be, we'd love to pray for you. But we're going to sing worship. We're going to praise Jesus for this reality that he came and he died. For Zacchaeus, for me, and for you. That he doesn't just know us and see us kind of sit back and watch us. No, he, he loves us and pursues us. Pursued us all the way to a cross. So Jesus, we praise you for that tonight. And again, if you need prayer for anything, we would love to pray for you. But let's sing.